This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, celebrating Reunion Weekend, where alumni have gathered to reconnect and learn. This is a special presentation of Behind the Markets. Here's your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Welcome to the special Reunion Radio edition of Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETF Sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor at Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offer of sale and investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or affiliates. As we mentioned, special reunion edition of the program today. All three of our guests today are Wharton grads, two uh, in the studio to start off the show. Uh, also, Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, also a Wharton grad. Wes, thanks for coming back to the studio today. Very excited to be here. And thanks for inviting Akshay and his, his partner to be on the show. We're going to introduce our two guests here in just a moment. But Professor Siegel, we have you for some commentary on the market activity this week. Uh, give us your sense. What is, what is happening? Yeah. Um, good news on the inflation front this week, um, uh, both on producer prices and consumer prices. And then combined with that moderate wage gain on Friday has given a little bit of relief to the bond market. And that, I think, propped up. Uh, the stocks uh, a bit, although I uh, would not be too sanguine about this situation because we still have a uh, red-hot labor market. While, I mean, jobless claims are, you know, uh, at 45-year lows, uh, that's, um, uh, you know, a very important indicator. I mean, that that's still 200,000 monthly gain, and that's twice as much as, uh, you know, the, the uh, population is providing keeps on driving that unemployment rate down. So, yeah, it's a little bit of relief now uh, to this week, but, I, I, you know, the long run is the Fed is is definitely in a tightening mode, will tighten on in June, and I, I bet still in September and, and December. Yeah, so the 10-year keeps hovering around 3%, but we also have sort of geopolitics sort of seeming to be going in, in a positive direction. Any commentary on what's happening in, in those markets there? Well, uh, yeah, you know, geopolitically, you know, the uh, we had Trump pulling out of the, of course, of the Iran deal, which gave a little bit of a movement uh, to oil. Although I think part of the move was beforehand uh, that uh, you know the smart money thought that he was actually going to do it. So we have WTI over seventy one dollars. Wow, I mean that's good for the S and P, good for the oil. I mean actually, higher oil prices is good for earnings on the S and P. It's less less good for American consumers, but you know we are almost balanced oil-wise in terms of um, production and consumption, uh, and so a higher price is not uh, the terrible bugaboo that it certainly was during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And so you'll be talking to the uh, the Wharton grads or the Wharton alumni weekend. Any any messages for for the alumni who who are listening and, and what you're going to be talking to them about tomorrow? Yeah, and so I'm I'm giving uh, a talk uh, tomorrow morning and. Uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, I'm going to give that big view on 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 uh, on stocks and returns, um, and uh, you know, a little bit. You, basically, you're going to see stocks are still going to be very good returns, not quite as high as the historical average, much greater than bonds. Uh, and this year is, 
I still think it's going to be up, but much tougher than 2017. Well, Professor, thanks for joining us for some commentary to start the show. Thank you. All right, I'm going to turn it to our two guests in the studio. We have Akshay Manushkani. Uh, maybe I got, I don't know if I got the Mansukani. Pro- Mansukani. I didn't get the pronunciation quite right. And, and Sumit Nagar. Um, two Wharton grads, managing partners, co founders, or uh, or Sumit's a co founder of Malabar Investments. Akshay is a managing partner at the same firm. Uh, welcome to our studio, gents. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Akshay, were you you and I were the same class uh, at Warren? Yes, we uh, I think subarticulated together into the MBA program as well. Uh, well, I didn't quite get into that program, but uh, we were we were uh, well we entered together. Okay. Wes, uh, thanks for again for bringing these guys to to uh, to the show. Um, so, Akshay, maybe talk a little bit about you, you know, Warren, what you you, you subarticulated. Where where do you go from Warren, and, and how do you get into to Malabar? Sure. Uh, thank you. Uh, I, after uh, Wharton, uh, actually, the, the journey for post Wharton started at Wharton, like like most of us. Uh, I connected uh, with with a gentleman by the name of uh, Jason Bremen, uh, who was uh, an MBA uh, when I was an undergrad, and he was at UBS post uh, graduation and introduced me to the guys there. And I had some uh, experience on the derivatives front here uh, when I was at Wharton, and so I moved into the derivatives desk at UBS. Uh, uh, on, on Park Avenue that morphed into our alternative capital markets desk, effectively uh, doing everything outside of, pre-IP, uh, of IPOs and follow-ons, excuse me. So it was pre-IPOs, pipes, uh, private converts, uh, and that morphed into our, our prop desk. Going into 06, 07, we deployed uh, some money uh, alongside deals that we were raising capital for. Um, my father's been in the, the Indian business space for many years. He founded a company called Onida. Uh, it's a company that manufactures and sells uh, televisions, air conditioners, washing machines. Uh, he founded the company in 1981. Uh, last year, we were ranked number four uh, consumer durables brand. Uh, and he had uh, unfortunately made a, a host of private equity investments at the same time in, in the Indian marketplace uh, and pretty much called me up and said, uh, need some help. Uh, and so there was a bias towards the public markets, recognizing that uh, if uh, if we make a mistake, we can exit out of that uh, uh, that situation. Uh, and along my work, uh, I was very lucky in India. I did uh, over 80 uh, meetings. I was very lucky to meet with Sumit, uh, and I let Sumit introduce himself. But it was uh, uh, what I recognized an incredible opportunity uh, of information asymmetry uh, if we were doing field work. Uh, on these uh, on these businesses, there's pretty low level of uh, fund coverage uh, in the universe that we're uh, investing in. And if you have a long-term outlook, there's a tremendous amount of growth uh, that we're experiencing. Our portfolio companies <clears throat> last uh, five years uh, have uh, the top 10 names have generated a 32% weighted average earnings growth. And so if you have patient investors, it mm. uh, results in uh, stock uh, compounding. Uh, so it's been a, a long journey, almost almost ten years. I'll I'll turn it over to to Sumit. Yeah, and Sumit, you went to IIT, one of India's top uh, engineering schools, from what I understand, and then you did your MBA here, finance and entrepreneurial management. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I was uh, I was here in 1991. Uh, you know, I keep joking with Akshay that uh, he needs to pay part of the tuition fee because when we were there, we were we never were in the Huntsman Hall. So, yeah. Uh, you know, so it, it uh, you're back. Came up. At least yeah, you're so back. Nice. At least I'm here happy now. To be back here. Yeah. And so, how what did, when you left when you left Wharton, what was your track to, to getting to Malabar? Sure. So um, I started uh, after I graduated. I started working with uh, McKinsey and Company, and with them I focused uh, on uh, investment work. So I worked with uh, a number of clients, uh, which were private equity firms, uh, hedge funds, other public market uh, investors, 
and I advise them on making investments, um, you know, conduct the diligence for them and so forth. And fairly early on, I had an opportunity to look at uh, investments in India for my clients, and it was something that I was excited about. Um, and the more work that I did on that front, I realized that some of the best ideas were these small and mid-sized companies that were undercovered, under-researched, they were growing very well, and yet they you know, tended to trade at a discount. And so that's a classic value investor's paradise, right? You know, where go where the fish are and not the fishermen. And mm. and so, um, you know, I talked to some of the value investors and other clients that I knew. And with the backing of uh, some of them, we started Malabar back in 2007, 2008. So we're coming up to 10 years now. Yeah. Very good. So, Sumit, this is uh, Wes. Uh, I've heard the story through Akshay because when he was actually thinking of joining it, we were kind of wargaming different ideas. And he's like, man, do I really want to do this? I'm one of the youngest MDs ever at UBS. This is crazy. Should I join this small hedge fund that's going to trade tiny stocks in India? And obviously you guys are now you know, a huge success. You mind just stepping back and walking us through those initial stages of starting the firm and you know, where you're working in a – you know, cardboard box or like what was the scene when you guys started before you became rich and famous? Um, sure. So, you know, just like any entrepreneurial journey, right, it starts with, uh, you know, almost like being in a garage and, uh, you know, just sort of huddling together and, and working. And, and I think it's always a tough choice to make, right, because uh, many of us and, and this is true for other working guys who are out there, you know, you're all successful. You're all doing great jobs and, you know, you're doing fairly well. And in many ways, it's a step down, right? To go and start something, you know, you're you're taking a hit on uh, on your uh, you know earnings on your on your lifestyle. Uh, but that's the sacrifice you need to make if you want to achieve something longer term. And so I remember when 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 I was planning to start this, uh, you know, I had uh, conversations with uh, some of the people I knew, and and one of the best advice I got, you know, I was saying, you know, I can I had offers to join other investment firms where I could have earned 10 times as much that I was earning at Malabar in day one. And, and one of the best advice I got was uh, somebody who said, you know, forget about all the constraints. Forget about all the money, economics. If there was nothing else, what is it that you would be most excited about, right? And clearly, what I was most excited about was to start a firm that would invest in these undercover opportunities to unearth these opportunities that other investors haven't seen, and uh, and generate sort of returns through that, and so that's how we got started. Now, just to follow up on that, to make matters even worse, you guys launched in the middle of the financial crisis in 2008. You mind sharing some stories on that and how that <laughs> kind of built your foundation? Sure. So you know, I, I sort of bring that point up to say that uh, you know we're not very good market timers. You can you can see that you know so our focus has to be on bottom up fundamental research. Uh, but, you know, it was a tough journey when we, uh, you know, we started and a few months later, the financial crisis hit and lo and behold, uh, no investor wanted to invest in India, which is, you know, far away from here, in a new manager uh, focusing on small cap. I mean, this is like, you know, three sigma out of what anybody wanted to do. Right? Yeah, it's it's and, almost a bad joke. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so nobody. But I think as it always happened, that was the best time to have been investing in India. So, yes, it was challenging. You know, we had to uh, make sure that we uh, tightened the belt. You know, we cut costs. You know, I cut my own compensation twice. Um, you know, we re renegotiated rent, did whatever we could to make sure that we could survive through that, and, and we did. 
And I, I know that well. So we started an index for India 10 years ago also. It started, we just hit its 10-year anniversary, and I think the index is basically right where it started. So like a very broad market India, when you think about what the rupee's done, what the market's done. Now, talk about your experience. Like For, for people, you have a 10 years history. You're up something like, what, three times? Yeah, so it's been it's been a great journey, and yeah, so it's it's uh, you know we've uh, gone three x in that same period when market hasn't done too much yeah. in dollar terms, uh, and part of that has to do with the fact that uh, you know we found these great opportunities, um, you know terrific companies that were compounding year after year, and uh, their quality wasn't known because people hadn't done the work or done the research to understand them, and and so if you invest in companies like that they can compound their earnings at a very high enough rate over the years. And then as the recognition of their quality uh, becomes more apparent, uh, there is some sort of multiple re-rating that happens as well. And so that's what allowed us to generate these outside returns. And you, and you can get very concentrated portfolios in what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. so you know, that's the idea. You, know, you, find, uh, you find the best companies that you can invest in. You sort of become owners of these companies, and, and you generate your returns through that. Yeah, <clears throat> so you know when I think about the early days and what's got us, you know, here, uh, sure, there's you know keeping your cost low, but in my mind, there's three things that uh, that stand out. You know, one is just appreciation of your own mistakes. I think uh, in this business where we're just trying to make a few decisions and make more right decisions than wrong, having an open mind, uh, kind of reflecting on you know what went wrong, you know how could we could improve on it, and having a a culture based on that, I think is uh, is something that we've done you know right from the start. I think second is pulling in team members with different backgrounds and t- different skill sets, but figuring out a way in which you can disagree but yet move on and and work together. I think that's that's very powerful. And then third, uh, just get some kind of external accreditation. You know, we had uh, we we're lucky to Sumit started with a few um, uh, reputed global investors, but the uh, family of uh, you know Oppenheimers, uh, specifically the partnerships of Oppenheimer and close uh, came through uh, in uh, 2012 and they've been around since 1985 and I think that really the father Phil and son Carl manage the partnerships they've done I think over 50 company visits with us on the ground and then having them you know come in as uh, on our board and, and investors uh, made a big difference actually this is Wes I, n- I know you got another uh, mover and shaker on your I think it's your board J- Jim uh, Donaghy who's near and dear to me because he's a U.S. Marine and Vietnam vet does he help kind of keep you guys aligned around there? Uh, absolutely. So uh, Jim, uh, we don't uh, waste our words uh, when he's around. Uh, he keeps us completely on track in terms of what the focus is. Uh, and I think he has decades of experience dealing with uh, investments. And specifically, uh, one of his uh, one of their best investments uh, was value partners in Hong Kong. Value partners manage uh, over $18 billion in, in assets. have been around since 1993. Um, and Jim and, and Holding Capital, his firm, were the first investors in value partners, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day. Uh, and I think it speaks volumes of uh, people who understand emerging markets, uh, placing a, a bet, you know, on us in uh, in 2008. Maybe talk a little bit high level. What's the macro case for India? Not everybody will be able to get to an accredited investor status, be able to invest with, with you guys. Um, but what's for people who are looking at India from a macro perspective, what's the bullish case for India or the bearish case? What, what do you? Uh, sure. Sure. So I think, you know, when I uh, came back home, it was it kind of broke down into three simple uh, uh, buckets. Uh, you had, you know, a, a financial system. 
which was relatively stable. We had absolutely no kind of subprime uh, exposure back when the financial crisis happened. It's been a conservative uh, financial system, a young, hungry population uh, where you have you know over 1.2 billion people, and it's uh, uh, a lot of it is is low income per capita GDP is crossed a thousand dollars, and so I think uh, people working hard, generating more money, and that money generating a better lifestyle for themselves is something which is a cycle which is extremely powerful, very hard to break, and we see it happening. And then there's the third piece, which is the politics, which in today's environment, it's it's more positive than it, it has been. But irrespective of the, the who's in charge, since when the economy opened up in 91, uh, we've grown uh, in that 6, 7, 8% zone real, you know, 12, 13% nominal, you know, over, uh, over a couple of decades. Uh, so that's kind of a very high level. Uh, I'll turn it over to Sumit. Yeah, so I think when you translate that into an investment viewpoint, you have an economy which is going to be one of the fastest growing economies in the world over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, when you have that sort of strong tailwind behind you, it's easy for companies to grow at, at a very fast rate. And, and that's what creates a lot of value and wealth for investors. And so that's a clear macro case that you're going to have a country that's going to be one of the fastest growing economy, uh, a country that's going to be adding most number of people to the workforce over the next 20 years. And, uh, and you want to participate in that. Uh, Sumit Akshay, uh, another question for you. One of the big concerns people have with India is, you know, they read about corruption, like the rule of law. And Akshay, I know you're, you know, chair of the hedge fund subcommittee on what's equivalent to the Indian SEC. And I know you're kind of leading the efforts to make sure that's squared away in the future. You mind speaking to that? Sure. So uh, the <clears throat> Indian regulations are uh, kind of fairly old school and archaic. And I think what we realize is we can learn a lot from European and, and U.S. Uh, regulations. And uh, uh, the alternative investment fund uh, concept uh, came about you know, a few years ago. We were one of the first funds uh, to get a license. And through that process, we started our interactions with the Security and Exchange Board of India, SEBI. Uh, and what we realize is they're an extremely open-minded organization. They realize they need to do what's right for the ecosystem. <clears throat> but there are certain things that you learn along the way. Uh, so, for example, uh, there's a fair amount of uh, kind of corruption in the system uh, which needs to be addressed. And so while we're focused on what's the right thing, many times you'll hear from SEBI officials, well, you know, if I was a, a crooked guy, I could get around. And so let's try and fix this loophole. You know, so there's a little bit more time spent on, on trying to fix loopholes. Uh, apart from that, I would say it's a very nascent market. I think on the in the hedge fund or alternative investment fund space, there's only $3 billion uh, uh, in aggregate, which is there today. So it's really a, a drop in the bucket. And, you know, a lot more um, can be done. And I think as we kind of uh, have, we've already made changes uh, to the regulation. It's uh, It's been a fair amount of work. And we have to work with the finance ministry. We have to work with the Reserve Bank of India. We have to work with the tax authorities. So there's many different groups that we have to pull together to uh, to make a change. Uh, but overall, I would say we're, we're definitely heading in the right direction. We're talking with Akshay Mansukhani, Sumit Nagar of Malabar Investments. Um, and, you know, you focus on India investments and really small mid-caps. Now, one of the things we talked about how much you can add value over a market. And so there's this question on how efficient or inefficient are markets. And clearly you guys are being able to ex add excess returns, you know, dramatically for India. How would you describe your investment style? It's, it sort of sounds like you're going for big growth companies, but then key part is the valuation because they're growing so fast. Like how do you describe your, your process? Sure. So we, we think of ourselves as value investors, right? And, uh, you know, we're looking for value. We're looking to buy companies for less than what they're worth. I mean, that's the core tenet of value investing. Uh, 
uh, it says that you are in a growing economy where growth is a strong component of value, right? Yeah. So you have to be able to understand the growth. You need to make sure that it's profitable growth, that it doesn't consume a lot of capital to achieve that growth, um, and you're not overpaying for that growth, right? And, and how sustainable that growth is and what is the longevity of that growth. And, and to be able to get that, you need to have strong, sustainable, competitive advantages, uh, the moat around these businesses. And so our work is pretty much structured around understanding those things. Number one is, you know, how attractive this business is in terms of its economics. Uh, can it generate outsized returns in terms of uh, return on equity and cash flow over long periods of time? And, and through that, it can fund its own growth. Um, and, and if they can do that, then they don't need any capital to grow over a period of time. And, and, and for that, what is the real motor on this business? What is their differentiation? So we do a lot of on-the-ground work. So we're going out and meeting the companies. We're meeting their suppliers. We meet their distributors, customers. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll even sort of go and do ref check on, on, on through their neighbors, people living in the same community. So there's a lot of hard work. It's almost like the kind of diligence that private equity firms would do on their companies. But you need to go and sort of kick the tires. You need to go pound the payment to be able to really understand. Yeah, just add one thing. In uh, in India, uh, the families that own these businesses, in most cases, manage the businesses as well. Uh, so we have to kind of make sure that the people we're dealing with are clean. Uh, they have the right mindset. Uh, you know, their outlook on capital allocation uh, is astute. Uh, they have the track record of, of dealing with minority investors in, in the right manner. Uh, and so I think that's, you know, a fair amount of work. And, uh, you, and if, you know, the best kind of case for us is if competition uh, acknowledges, you know, the company that we're evaluating that they're doing a good job, uh, it speaks volumes. This is Wes. Um, it's, it's super interesting. I almost feel like you guys are the Warren Buffetts of India. Uh, have you ever? I mean, everything you're saying is is very Warren Buffett-esque. Is that someone you look up to as an investor? Or? We, we definitely look up to uh, to Warren and Charlie. We were just there in Omaha uh, this past weekend, uh, but I don't think we have done anything close to deserving uh, the the title that you're saying. But so I think you get thirty percent return <laughs> for the first ten years, and then the second ten years. Well, you guys are on your way, on the way. <laughs> but um, I think the, the the key thing is to apply those principles in Indian market in the Indian context. So you can't just do a copy paste. You can't do what sort of Warren and Charlie have done here and do the same thing in India. Uh, you know the context is different, the market is different. So you need to do that a little bit differently. Uh, so, for example, you know we we tend to spend a lot of time truly understanding the management and 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 their quality and how, what motivates them, what drives them. Uh, you know, do they have the capability to take this business five times the size of where they are today? But I think fundamentally, I think it's the Indian market is. Is young enough. It's early enough. It's it's you know we've had some of our mentors uh, you know tell us you know people have been in here in the U.S. So Phil Oppenheimer was uh, was uh, been invested with us and has been mentored to us. You know when he comes to India and sees companies, he says you know this reminds me of U.S. in the 60s and 70s. You have these sort of young companies, industrial companies, growing rapidly, a lot of market power. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, you know just trying to find companies like that and investing in them. You, you guys want to tell a story about maybe a company you guys own in the portfolio and the case for sort of as an anecdote for what's happening in India generally? Sure. I mean, uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, people come to the U.S., they realize, you know, that air travel is so prevalent, right? It's just so common. Uh, you know, it's hard to find anybody who hasn't traveled by airplane here in the U.S. Uh, if you go to India, it's exactly the opposite, right? You have 
maybe less than 10% of population who has ever flown, uh, but it's changing rapidly, right? So you're finding uh, that India is the fastest growing aviation market in the world. Um, but, you know, just like the old days, the anecdotes that you don't want to be involved in the gold rush, you don't want to own the gold mine, you want to own the showers. So, you know, we don't want to be investing in airlines and, and see that volatility. But when you travel, what do you need? You need bags, right? So we invested in a company that um, is one of the luggage makers in, in India. And that's an industry which is also growing in line with the, the growth of the airline industry, of the tourism industry. Um, and and in India, as well as in globally, this industry is always very concentrated. So in India, you have three players who control 90% of that market. And, uh, and you know, this company is is benefiting from that growth, so they're a very, very strong tailwind. The second interesting thing is that uh, as anybody who's traveled to India would realize that there are lots of motorcycles, there are lots of two-wheelers out on the, on the road. And that has happened over the last 10 years that India has become the largest manufacturer and consumer of motorcycles. But when you travel on motorcycles, it's very difficult to carry anything. So people use backpacks. So backpacks mm. market has become very big. So the company that we invested in, uh, they make luggage, but they also make backpacks. And and that's seeing a very, very rapid growth today. And there's a lot of product innovation that's coming into those products. And so we have this company that, uh, you know, has very strong tailwinds behind this. And on top of that, there's a there's a great management change. You know, so we had this company that had been, uh, you know, number three company of the three sort of big players, uh, which had been languishing for many years. And, and then a very strong, capable CEO came in. He put his life's earnings to, to buy this business. And since he has bought this, uh, it's been growing at 30% year on year for the last five years. So that's a kind of an example where there's a strong market tailwind. Uh, you have a very capable CEO who's come in, who's attracting the right people around him. And what's the valuation on a 30% growth business like that? So I, I forgot to say ten, one more. Ten one, PE. <laughs> I forgot to say one more point, right? Uh, that as the business is growing, it's getting more and more operating leverage. Yeah. And so its earnings are growing even faster because the margins are improving. Uh, so optically, obviously, when you looked at the business, it, it, it sort of looked expensive. When we initially bought it, it was, uh, uh, it was at one and a half times sales. And there's a reason why I'm using sales is because the margins were really depressed mm-hmm. at that point in time. Uh, since we've invested over the last one year, the earnings have grown by about 90% year on year. So they're growing very yeah. rapidly, and they're easily growing into their valuation. Got it. So, Sumit, this is uh, my attempt at stock picking. But when I was in India, one of the biggest things uh, I, I guess, wandered into is the fact that traffic is totally insane, and there seems like no rules. So are there any uh, traffic sign makers in India that you guys are checking out? Because I'm very bullish on that. They're not getting any business today. <laughs> okay. If they post them, no one will follow them, right? Exactly. Now, one um, one thing that's super interesting just from listening to you guys talk is, you know, here in the States and more competitive markets, it's all quant factors, data-driven. It almost sounds like everything you're mentioning here is maybe quant is a very small piece and it's 95% qualitative. Do you mind speaking to that? Sure. I think we have uh, we recognize some of the large funds in America that have uh, they've been quant-focused and have been doing, doing really well. Uh, what we hear from our friends in the community and, and what we see as well is there are a couple of kind of issues uh, in on the quant side. I think one is just the access uh, to the data and clean data. It's difficult to get uh, given changes in, uh, in in accounting treatment. And then also kind of the timeline that you have the data, you know, for 
for the larger names where there is actually liquidity to uh, to go ahead and execute on some of these strategies. I've heard uh, my friends at the big funds mention that even if they were to be successful, the total capacity for the strategy would be 100 million uh, and it would grow over a period of time. But to dedicate the resources, you know, it, it may not make sense uh, just given the size today. Uh, the Just to provide some context. Uh, futures and options are available on maybe 200 stocks in India at the moment, and the liquidity is maybe 50 stocks. So you're yet uh, a pretty nascent uh, economy and uh, in even more nascent uh, stock market. Now, you guys started off focusing on small caps, and you sort of ran into, I think you sort of closed your original fund. Now you're starting to focus on mid caps. Any commentary on, on, on that, you know, how sure. you guys are tar- targeting the market? We, you know, we've been focused on, on small and, and mid caps right from the start. I think the investment philosophy has been very clear. Try and find uh, the number one or number two uh, business in that specific niche that you're focusing on. And in certain cases, maybe consumer, those companies are, are smaller. Uh, less than 750 million is the threshold by the National Stock Exchange between small and mid. And then on the mid size, you may have certain financial companies that uh, may be, you know, m- larger in market capitalization. Uh, I think as we grow, we've seen a fair amount of movement of certain companies from the small to the mid. Uh, we've hard closed our, our small and mid cap fund now coming close on on 10 years. And, and two years ago, uh, Value Partners, I mentioned, uh, being one of our initial investors, wanted to you know add some capital. And so we just uh, created the sleeve, the mid cap sleeve of our portfolio for them. So it's uh, uh, nothing new. It's existing names in the portfolio. We're just able to allocate uh, more capital to those companies. Uh, and I think, again, what, what gives us uh, the great confidence is just the sheer earnings growth on both, you know, the small and the mid cap. Uh, and a company, you know, doesn't uh, think too much when it crosses 750 million and it goes from small to mid, they, they keep growing. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a pretty long-term story that we can benefit from. Yeah, we'll, or, or sorry, Jeremy, go for it. I was say we're running out of time, our first segment, but uh, I know actually I think you can stick with us. Samit, any sort of closing thoughts, things that you've learned at Malabar you want to bring back to the Wharton community here for, for Reunion Weekend? Sure. I think, uh, you know, for uh, many of uh, the fellow graduates, uh, you know, there are some of the people who have graduated in the last few years. There is always that thought, you know, at some point that you want to become an entrepreneur, you want to start something. Uh, but it's a challenging decision many times because you have uh, other financial sort of liabilities and, and, and you want to be careful. But I would say is that if you're really passionate about something, if you really want to do something, just go and do it, right? You know, there's there's enough safety nets around. Uh, the cost of failure is so low. Uh, and, and you never want to have the regret that, oh, I should have done that. Yeah. So if you're passionate about it, just go do it. Very wise words. Thanks for uh, for joining us. And actually, you stay with us. So you're listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111's our special reunion radio edition of the show. We'll be back after a short break. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 